On a blustery day in September 2016, 13 people filed into The Marksman, a classic British pub in London's East End. They hadn't come for an after-work pint. They were there for an exquisite wine tasting. The group included some of the finest chefs, food experts, and sommeliers in England and France. Over the course of an afternoon, the critics tried a dozen sparkling wines, eight of the finest brands from the Champagne region of France, and four grown in England. The judges rated the pours on color, clarity, smell, and, of course, taste. They tallied up the points at the end, and... In a stunning upset, the Brits won. For so long, it wasn't much of a competition. France had the perfect terroir for growing wine. The Champagne region had a Mediterranean climate with dry summers perfect for growing delicate grapes. England, on the other hand, wasn't ideal, with its warm summers, cool winters, and near-constant rain. A lot has changed, though. Our planet is around 1 degree Celsius, or 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit, warmer than it was a century ago. As a result, areas of England now resemble the climate of Champagne, France, 60 years ago. But while this uptick in temperature may mean fine wine can grow in London, a few more degrees could spell disaster. Wine could become a thing of the past, along with all life on Earth. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. Earth Day is April 22nd, so this spring, we're diving into the depths of the oceans, soaring through the upper reaches of the atmosphere, plunging into the most remote jungles, and traveling backward in time billions of years to when the first life appeared on our planet. We'll ask... What secrets does our planet hide? Today, we're discussing the effects of climate change. We'll dive into the history of our fossil fuel dependence and the root causes of our planetary problems. And we'll examine what might happen if global warming continues unchecked. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs, from business to health, is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. August 5, 1888, dawned warm and bright in the German city of Mannheim. Bertha Benz thought it was the perfect day for a drive. In 1888, most people had never even heard the word automobile. Going for a drive usually meant hooking up horses to a carriage. But not for Bertha. Bertha drove her husband Carl's invention, a three-wheeled contraption called the Patent Motorwagen. She was off to visit her mother in the nearby city of Fortsheim. 
After 13 hours, multiple breakdowns, and 66 long miles, Berta completed her trip and became an auto industry pioneer. Her Sunday drive was the world's first long-distance automobile trip. Practically the entire history of modern transportation can be traced back to Berta's drive. Her husband, Carl Benz, invented the world's first automobile two years earlier, in 1886. But after Berta's trip made headlines, car sales exploded and other manufacturers entered the market. In 1926, Benz merged his company with the automaker Daimler and released their first car together. In 2022, Benz's legacy can be seen in the 1.45 billion cars on roads across the world, each one a direct descendant of the Motorwagen. Stories like this are a hallmark of the Industrial Revolution. In the 130 years or so since Berta Benz's drive, Humans have made huge strides in the transportation industry. We've created bullet trains that can travel over 350 miles an hour. There are upwards of 100,000 commercial airline flights a day. We've landed human beings on the moon. And every year we get closer to self-driving cars taking over the roads. This period of massive technological expansion has brought incredible convenience, easy access to goods, fast travel, a higher quality of life, but our progress had a dark cost. As the world transitioned into the modern era, our planet began warming at an unprecedented rate. And at first, nobody was sure why. But back in the mid-1800s, long before Benz invented his automobile, one researcher thought she had the answers. In 1856, American researcher Eunice Foote discovered a connection between carbon dioxide and heat. She suggested that increasing the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere could make the Earth's climate warmer. Carbon dioxide was a byproduct of the modern age. To power steamships, locomotives, factory machines, and even cars, humans burned fossil fuels. As we discussed earlier in this series, fossil fuels are created when organic matter, such as ancient plants and animals, are buried for millions of years. The immense heat and pressure of the Earth's crust gradually transform them into fuel sources, like natural gas, coal, or crude oil. Burning these materials creates energy, which then powers everything from electric lights to indoor heating. But it also releases carbon dioxide. The gas Eunice Foote believed was warming the world. By the turn of the century, physicists like John Henry Poynting used Foote's research as the basis for what he called the greenhouse effect. He believed carbon dioxide in the atmosphere acted like the thick glass of a greenhouse. When the sun shines on our planet, some of its energy reflects back as heat. Carbon dioxide traps some of this heat, while the rest dissipates in space. The more greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, the more heat they capture, and the faster our planet's surface heats up. Early researchers didn't necessarily see this as a bad thing. Some believed warming colder parts of the planet would encourage more fertile land for planting, and the abundance of food would usher in a golden age of humanity. 
And it might have, if the temperature rose gradually. But over the past 100 years, the globe has warmed at an alarming rate. In the mid-1800s, scientists believed that it would take 3,000 years for the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere to rise 50%. Instead, it's risen 30% in just one century. It was initially unclear how CO2 emissions spiraled out of control like this, so far past researchers' projections. But those mid-1800 scientists had no way of knowing how quickly our world would come to rely on fossil fuels. In the United States, 81% of all the energy we use today comes from burning oil, gas, and coal. Every time we flip a switch or turn on an engine or even fire up our electric toothbrushes, it sends particles of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. To be fair, humans didn't know the impact that fossil fuels would have on our environment a hundred years ago. But beginning in the 1960s, we learned exactly how our climate would change if we didn't reverse course. When modern climate experts first started raising the alarm in the 1950s and 60s, the man leading the charge was oceanographer Roger Revelle. At the time, many scientists believed burning more fossil fuels wasn't a problem because the oceans would just absorb the excess carbon dioxide. But that didn't sit well with Ravel. He'd always been interested in the role of carbon dioxide in seawater and couldn't help but wonder, if the ocean could absorb so much CO2, why were the gas levels in the atmosphere still rising? Then, in a 1957 paper, he crunched the numbers. His findings contradicted what everyone else had been saying. According to his calculations, nearly 80% of new carbon dioxide emissions that entered the atmosphere would remain there. The ocean would not have a significant impact. Ravel hoped this data would be the key to triggering meaningful change, he believed if he provided the proof, somebody in power would listen. So Ravel set out to prove his calculations were correct. He traveled to the heart of Hawaii's Big Island to establish a weather bureau station. He and a geochemist named Dr. Charles Keeling set up shop atop the volcano of Mauna Loa. The two researchers set their instruments to record the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Each day, Dr. Keeling added another data point to a graph, tracking the measurements. Years later, Ravel had collected all the evidence he needed. The ocean was not absorbing nearly enough gas. The carbon dioxide in the atmosphere was increasing. With every new particle emitted, the greenhouse effect was getting worse. Ravel shared his findings with President Lyndon B. Johnson. As a result, Johnson ordered a committee, headed by Ravel, to study what this could mean for the country. But not much came of it. Lawmakers ultimately decided more research needed to happen. Progress came to a halt. For nearly 20 years, few people took climate change seriously. Though the term began circulating outside of scientific circles, many dismissed it. The idea that humans were responsible for warming the planet was deemed far-fetched. But we've since learned that some corporations were very aware of the dangers of climate change. And to protect their profits, 
they kept the truth secret. Coming up, a cover-up that changed the world. Hi, listeners. I'm Tom Morton, host of Parcast's landmark show, Real Pirates, where we set sail alongside history's most notorious villains. Dive into their world during the golden age of piracy in an immersive audio experience. Listen as experts reveal the reality of life under the black flag. There is no evidence that I have ever seen of any pirate burying their treasure. Catch our previous episodes on Major Steve Bonnet, Charles Vane, and Blackbeard. Blackbeard himself as a pirate was a larger-than-life figure. He would put candles into his hair to frighten his victims. And still to come are the stories of Anne Bonny, Captain Kidd, and Henry Morgan. Join us for new episodes every Monday as we follow the rise and fall of the most legendary outlaws ever to sail the seven seas. Real Pirates is a Spotify original from Parcast. Follow and listen to Real Pirates for free on Spotify. Now back to the story. As early as the 1960s, scientists like Roger Revelle warned authorities about rapidly increasing carbon levels warming our planet. But amidst election campaigns and Cold War crises, the federal government dropped the ball on creating any significant change. During the 1970s and the 1980s, American oil companies made good-faith efforts to research global warming and strategize how to best combat it. You're likely familiar with one of them, a company named Exxon. In 1978, Exxon launched a study into its carbon footprint. It was mostly uncharted territory, so measurement took some trial and error. They put instruments on oil tankers to track their emissions as they sailed from the Gulf of Mexico to the Persian Gulf. They also assigned multiple researchers to develop computer models of how the climate would change over time. By 1982, the results were clear. Exxon circulated an internal memo claiming that halting global warming, quote, would require major reductions in fossil fuel combustion. They'd found that their own business was killing the planet. But executives forbade employees from distributing the message externally. Meanwhile, Exxon shared their study with the American Petroleum Institute, the national trade organization for oil and coal. Scientists from Exxon, Mobil, Shell, Sunoco, and more met in a task force to discuss the findings. One manager wrote in an internal memo that, quote, this may be the kind of opportunity that we're looking for, to have Exxon technology, management, and leadership resources put into the context of a project aimed at benefiting mankind. But executives ultimately decided to protect their bottom line. Exxon withheld the results of their research from their shareholders, as well as the public. Then, in 1986, an oil surplus caused prices to come crashing down, putting Exxon's earnings in jeopardy. At the same time, mainstream media started to cover climate change. On June 23, 1988, the United States Senate filed into their seats in the House chamber. The weather was on everyone's mind. D.C. was sweltering, and the whole country felt like it was in the grips of a blistering heat wave. Though they didn't know it yet, 1988 was about to be the hottest year on record. 
Years after oceanographer Roger Revelle showed his research to President Lyndon B. Johnson, climate scientist James Hansen approached the mic and stood before lawmakers with alarming news. Hansen once again testified that data indicated the greenhouse effect was warming the planet, and humans were the cause. James Hansen's testimony was backed by even more data than Ravel, decades of measurements. The next day, he was featured on the front page of the New York Times under the headline, Global Warming Has Begun, Expert Tells Senate. The news made Exxon nervous. They knew he was right. They, too, had years of research proving their business practices were driving global warming. But rather than come forward, the oil company continued to bury their findings. Instead, oil conglomerates poured money into think tanks and donated to politicians who promoted the idea that the research behind climate science was shaky that there was somehow not enough evidence to link their products to global warming. They also perpetuated the idea that combating climate change had little to do with cutting carbon emissions, all while insisting there was plenty of time to come up with other solutions. Today, we know these claims were and are false. Cutting carbon emissions and fossil fuel use is essential to saving the planet. By burying their research, the oil industry pushed us into a much more dangerous position. If we'd started taking decisive action in the 70s or 80s, the world would look much different than it does now. Still, the history of how we got here is complicated. And it's easy to paint the fossil fuel companies as the sole cause. But federal complacency has also played a major role. In 1989, the first-ever Global Climate Change Conference took place in Noordwijk, a city in the Netherlands. This was right as the global warming discussion was heating up in the media. For the first time, governments were discussing what policies they could enact to curb emissions. In the United States, George H.W. Bush had just become president. And it looked like he was making good on some of the climate-friendly promises he made during his campaign. He represented the U.S. at the Nordvike Conference and helped hash out one of the strongest climate resolutions ever proposed. If enacted, every country to sign would commit to cutting 20% of their carbon emissions by 2005. But when it came time to vote, four global superpowers, the United Kingdom, the Soviet Union, Japan, and the United States, refused to sign. The Americans, Brits, and Soviets said they feared the changes would be too costly and asked for more studies to be conducted. The Japanese, for their part, claimed they were already cutting emissions at a greater rate. Therefore, they didn't want to be tied to the nations lagging behind. This was just the first of many climate summits that ended with non-binding promises, insufficient targets, or no agreements at all. Many climate activists feel we've had every chance to stop climate change, but have chosen to ignore it instead. Which seems counterintuitive, given that global warming is an existential crisis that threatens all of humanity. So why has it been so hard to act with any sense of urgency? Well, if you dig into the psychology, it's not so surprising. 
humans have a real problem dealing with abstraction. Our brains tend to dismiss events that seem far off or don't directly affect us. For example, imagine there's an area in your hometown that's notorious for car crashes. They've had an average of 10 pedestrians get hit there every year. If you've never had any problems at that intersection, you might think the municipal government should do something about the corner, but you probably wouldn't go out of your way to advocate for change. Now say you're crossing the street one day and get clipped by a car. After you recover, you'll probably be more likely to show up at the next town hall. Direct experience stimulates our brains in ways that abstract knowledge doesn't. Our brains are hardwired to act on the here and now. Understanding the psychology of how humans respond to information about climate change is important when it comes to combating it. If we can get everyone on the same page, we may still be able to save our planet. But we have to act quickly. In the modern era, researchers like marine biologist Dr. Emma Camp are on the front lines in the battle for Earth. When Dr. Camp was a child, she went diving for the first time on a family trip to the Caribbean. Anytime she put on goggles and dove underwater, it was like entering another world. Brightly colored tropical fish darted back and forth. Turtles floated by, searching for algae and seaweed to eat. And at the heart of it all was the vibrant, colorful coral reef its nooks and crannies hiding more secrets than a curious young diver could imagine. Dr. Camp was hooked. Today, she's a coral biologist working to save one of the last wonders of the natural world, the Great Barrier Reef. Located off the coast of Australia, the Great Barrier Reef is the world's largest reef, stretching over 100,000 square miles. It's an enormous ecosystem, home to thousands of species. But in 2016 and 2017, the reef underwent multiple catastrophic reactions called mass bleaching events. Though it looks like a Dr. Seuss plant, coral is actually an animal. And to thrive, it depends on a symbiotic relationship with the algae that live on its surface. When the surrounding water gets too warm, as it did between 2014 and 2017, the coral gets stressed and essentially kicks out the algae. This leaves the coral bone white and makes them vulnerable to disease and death. Between 2014 and 2017, high water temperatures affected 75% of the world's reefs. A third of the Great Barrier Reef died a section that, for perspective, encompassed an area similar to the state of Maine. In the wake of the mass bleaching event, Dr. Camp sought ways to help the Great Barrier Reef fight back. And she found a solution in an unlikely place, hidden among the gnarled roots of mangrove forests. In 2019, Dr. Camp dove into the shallow, warm waters surrounding a mangrove lagoon off the coast of Australia. Mangroves are unique trees that grow in saltwater instead of freshwater. Groves can also float above the water, suspended on stilt-like roots entangled with their neighbors. The water within mangrove lagoons is different from the open ocean. It's warmer and more acidic, with much less oxygen. But to Dr. Camp's surprise, she found corals nestled below the mangrove roots. 
the hardy creatures survived in conditions that would kill ocean corals. Dr. Camp hoped studying these corals could unlock the key to saving the Great Barrier Reef. As global warming increased, she knew the Pacific Ocean would only get hotter and more acidic. Like the mangrove lagoons, oxygen levels would go down. Ever since, Dr. Camp has been carefully transplanting the mangrove corals to bleached areas of the Great Barrier Reef. As of this recording, it's too early to tell the results of this experiment, but it seems promising. However, Dr. Camp has warned that even if her project is successful, it's only a stopgap measure. The Great Barrier Reef is far from the only ecosystem in danger. Humanity is on the chopping block, too. Coming up, six degrees could save the world or end it. Now back to the story. The 2010s were the hottest decade ever recorded. In 2021, the average temperature at the surface of the Earth was about 1.21 degrees Celsius or 2.17 degrees Fahrenheit warmer than the pre-industrial period. At over one degree hotter, the Earth is already experiencing extreme effects. In 2021 alone, there were 20 separate national disasters in the United States that caused over $1 billion in damage. 20 major floods, tornadoes, and hurricanes killed 688 people. For context, between 1980 and 2021, the average year only saw seven disasters as big. According to most researchers, if we don't take action, the temperature will keep spiking. If nothing changes, the Earth will be six degrees warmer by 2100 than it was in the pre-industrial period. And each degree will have major consequences. Many scientists believe that two degrees will fundamentally change the nature of our Earth. Among their biggest concerns are glaciers and polar ice sheets. At two degrees, the ice covering much of Greenland could melt into the sea. These glaciers hold enough water to raise sea levels by almost 22 feet. Most coastal cities, including Miami, Bangkok, Shanghai, and New York City, could become entirely submerged. If this were to happen, it would lead to a vicious cycle that would cause global warming to speed up exponentially. The more polar ice melts into water, the more water there will be to absorb heat from the sun. This will cause the remaining ice to melt even faster. Temperature aside, there's another reason we don't want the tundra to melt. Ancient, potentially lethal microbes live in the ice organisms that we may not have natural immunity to. If these microbes get free and infect people, it could send us spiraling into a deadly epidemic. At the same time, food shortages would rock the planet. California, one of North America's bastions of agriculture, would turn into a desert. In fact, many states would. The sand would stretch from the Pacific Ocean to the Mississippi and from Mexico to the Canadian border. At three degrees, with no ice in the Arctic, the Mediterranean and Northern Europe would have intense summer heat waves, hitting the same temperatures Northern Africa has today. Mediterranean farmland, fields of olives, wine grapes, or citrus fruits, 
will resemble the Sahara. For people who already live in the hottest areas on Earth, in parts of Pakistan, Iran, and Kuwait, the heat will become unbearable. Temperatures in the summer will climb to 60 degrees Celsius, or 140 degrees Fahrenheit. At those temperatures, no one will be able to be outside in the sun for longer than six hours. The planet's already severe weather will get worse. The huge, catastrophic storms that used to come every hundred years will touch down regularly. For example, in the Pacific Ocean today, every few years we encounter a climate pattern called El Nino. El Nino features unusually warm water, which can kill fish populations off Ecuador and Peru. It also feeds intense storms, which can flood coastal communities. El Nino currently occurs every two to seven years. At three degrees warmer, there will be an El Nino every year. Beyond the three-degree threshold, the consequences get more speculative. It's a mystery as to what exactly might happen, but scientists have made some concerning predictions. At four degrees, they believe the expansive frozen tundra in northern Canada could thaw and become fertile farmland, while areas to the south become too hot to grow crops. Alaska and the frigid Yukon Territory could turn into the breadbasket of a warmer world. The icy shores of Scandinavian countries could become tropical resort destinations. Instead of Cabo or Costa Rica, vacationers would dive into the warm waters of Stockholm. And with glaciers and snow-capped mountains practically non-existent, billions would face severe water shortages. The Ganges in India and the Yangtze in China both currently come from glacial springs. The people that depend on this water will be forced to migrate elsewhere to survive. Which brings us to five degrees, the point at which human civilizations as we know them could break down. Formerly temperate areas north and south of the equator could grow so arid they may no longer support life. Millions of climate refugees would be forced to move to the last remaining habitable zones, the North and South Pole. At this point, life might look like something out of Mad Max, a post-apocalyptic wasteland where humans are forced to fight over dwindling resources. But even at five degrees, there is the possibility of life. At six degrees, that possibility disappears. Six degrees will make oceans too warm for marine plants or animals. Deserts would cover most of every continent. There would be another global extinction event. Many scientists believe that without drastic action, we're on track to increase the global temperature by six degrees by the year 2100. We're not quite there yet, but we're on a dangerous path. We'll never bring the planet back to the way it was before the Industrial Revolution, but if we make a concerted effort, there's still hope for the future. We're often advised to recycle, to switch to paper straws, and to take shorter showers. All of these practices are great ways to help the planet, but individual action will only get us so far. To have a real hope for the future, the biggest contributors to climate change need to commit to sweeping changes. 
This means the governments of the countries with the highest carbon emission rates, like the United States, China, India, Russia, and Japan. It means airlines, tech companies, and the fossil fuel industry, coupled with curbing our own individual impact. Only then can we have hope for a better and cooler future. Today, companies and governments are focusing on making their emissions carbon neutral by 2050. This means that they would absorb as much carbon as they put out through carbon-removing technology or adapting renewable energy sources. The goal of the Paris Accords is to achieve total world carbon neutrality by 2050, which would keep the global temperature rise at 1.5 degrees. But even carbon neutrality may not be aggressive enough. Some argue that to fight climate change, the true goal should be carbon negativity, meaning absorbing more carbon than is emitted. And some companies are taking these measures. Microsoft has declared it will run completely on renewable energy by 2025. By 2050, the company plans to have removed more carbon from the environment than it has put in since its founding in 1975. Governments are also trying to play their part. For example, the European Union now taxes imports from less eco-conscious companies and countries. The tax encourages consumers to buy green. If companies and corporations continue down this path of drastically reducing carbon emissions, our environment would survive. But life in this not-so-distant future might still look remarkably different. Say you live in 2050 in a carbon-neutral New York City. Your daily commute may surprise you. When you step out of your door from your Manhattan apartment, you've got a few choices. Electric scooters dot the sidewalk, waiting to whisk you to work. There's also public transportation, energy-efficient subway trains and buses that run exclusively on renewable electricity. But today, you feel like taking a car. So an electric, driverless cab appears at the curb. Nobody owns a car anymore. With only other cabs on the road, the normal city gridlock is a distant memory. You zoom past green spaces built where there used to be asphalt parking lots. Spaces that haven't been converted to parks have become new affordable housing units to house the booming population. Nearly 68% of all humans now live in cities. The high-rises towering above you feature planters and gardens incorporated into their architecture to absorb more carbon from the city. Solar panels glitter atop nearly every roof. Wall Street has taken on new meaning as a massive seawall stands where the New York Stock Exchange once buzzed. Giant pumps work day and night, keeping the rising sea from flooding Manhattan. The entire city center has been forced to move several miles inland, out across the Hudson, you can see the wind turbines that power much of the city turning lazily in the breeze. They sprang up when the federal government ended subsidies for oil, coal, and natural gas and began funding renewable energy instead. Tracing the path of the river, you can see an electric high-speed bullet train whisking travelers to far-off destinations. In 2050, everything from a weekend day trip to a cross-country odyssey is taken by train. It's faster and more eco-friendly than planes. 
As you zoom towards the office, you ponder the same question you do every day. Where to get lunch? Whether it's tacos or a burger or sushi, it's likely that most of the options will be vegetarian or vegan. By replacing hamburgers with synthetic meat and restricting dairy, consumers have been able to revolutionize the way their food is produced. The vast herds of methane-producing cows that once covered the American West are a fraction of the size. Forests have been preserved instead of being demolished for grazing land. And the introduction of lab-grown meat means you have a plethora of environmentally friendly options right at your fingertips. This new carbon-neutral future is organized around some of the most basic human values. Faced with a climate crisis, we realize that to save ourselves, we need to help others. As you ponder this, the electric cab drops you right at your office door. It zooms off into the city to help the next person. This isn't a scenario set in stone. In fact, on our current path, our future looks much worse. But if humanity puts our planet first, this vision could come true. We have the opportunity to choose it. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Alex Button, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Molly Quinlan, with writing assistance by Ben Hanani and Connor Sampson. Fact-checking by Cara Mackerlein and research by Bradley Klein. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rosner. 